If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. For today's episode, I am excited to be joined by a friend of mine whom I've had on my old podcast multiple times. This is the first time I'll be having him on this podcast, and he's also a fellow host within the Christians for Liberty Network, and I'm just going to let him proceed with introducing himself to all of you. It's, his name is Gregory Baus. Greg, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Hope you're hanging in there. Oh, I'm, uh, you know, four kids and a full-time job and podcasting. Who needs sleep, right? It's <laughs> God rested on the seventh day, but I, I must think I'm better than God or something. I don't seem to value sleep, I guess. It's something I need to work on. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get the better of you eventually. Uh, it already has, but... <laughs> <laughs> but Greg, let's... Get into, could you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience just in terms of just a quick couple minute summary of your background and the things that you like to talk about with Carrie over on your podcast, Reformed Libertarians? Sure. I grew up in the Baltimore area, although now I'm living in middle Pennsylvania, about, let's see, maybe an hour or so, maybe an hour and a half north of you. And up the Susquehanna River, and I've lived in a number of different countries outside the U.S. My sort of middle career was teaching English overseas. I've done that in some Asian countries. I was in Budapest, Hungary as well, and I've been back in the U.S. since about 2018, and I'm a student again. I'm working on my master's thesis in philosophy. That's kind of that's my main interest in life. <laughs> Devoted to an obscure Dutch philosopher named Herman Doiverd that doesn't exactly relate to our topic tonight, but I've also studied some reform theology and one particular theologian named Meredith Klein. Meredith, I am a man, Klein, as we say sometimes. He passed away, I forget, maybe. 20, 20 years on now, or no, 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 less than that, maybe 10. Anyway, his work has some relevance for our topic this evening. But in any case, I am the co-host of the Reformed Libertarians podcast, and we aim to educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote a view of libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith and informed by a Reformed worldview. So, the theology comes into that, the Reformational philosophy, Neo-Calvinism comes into that, 
And of course, the libertarian anarchism, as your listeners will be familiar with, comes into it. And we're probably on our, let's see, as of today's date, we last week we released our 10th episode. That was our first interview episode talking about climate science. That was pretty good. Huh. I haven't listened to that one yet. It's so. a long one. Normally our episodes <laughs> are around like 20, 20 minutes. This one went an hour. We even had to cut some stuff out. So there's a bonus audio with the full intro and so on. Anyway, that was fun. We've done a few since then that, that are due to be released soon. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, I have like three episodes in the works and it's just like I keep recording more and I haven't finished editing any of them. So I'm just giving myself more work to do. <laughs> well, you've but, got uh, it. If you've got a stack in the queue, that's nice. We're a little bit yeah. behind, actually. It's making me nervous. I'm starting to sweat here. Well, it's kind of why I took Keeping a couple of weeks off from the production cycle just to get a little ahead, put some episodes in the queue. So I give myself a little bit of a buffer. I had a buffer and then life happened and I used the buffer. So yeah, kind of like right. a savings no, account when exactly. you, you withdraw from the savings account <laughs> and then you're like, okay, now it's time to put back in. So that's yep. where I'm at. Yep. So yeah, you and Carrie, I remember encountering both of you back on my old podcast and my kind of original genesis into figuring out Christian anarchism and libertarianism and connecting the dots. And we were both incredibly useful. And those conversations were definitely informative and helped to, me to kind of establish what I believe and to be able to make a competent defense of these ideas I really do love, although it's not pertinent to today's conversation, I really love the episode we did on sphere sovereignty. And I, yes. I, I'm probably going to edit that and re-release it on this podcast sometime in the near future because that's just a, it's a very fascinating subject and it's one that we did pretty good justice. And I think my listeners would, both old and new, would either like a refresher on that or be introduced to the topic again. But tonight, we have a different topic in mind. And I think this actually came up because you and I were chatting with the rest of our Christians for Liberty co-hosts in our group chat on Signal, and we were having conversations about just different theological worldviews and kind of honing in on the idea of biblical inerrancy and divine inspiration of scripture and how people will sometimes shy away from the belief in inerrancy because they have a hard time reconciling different parts of the Bible with their understanding of Jesus Christ and the new covenant and revelations that came with those things. And you and I, obviously, coming from more of a Reformed background, we take a, I don't mean this to be insulting or anything towards non-Reformed folks, but I just think we're particularly driven, I think, to take a very high view of Scripture and to not shy away from texts that might be difficult to some. And I think rather, I feel compelled at least to go and find those texts and to, if I have a problem with them, like if my, in my flesh I'm reading them and it's giving me a little bit of wincing or something, I feel compelled to actually dive deeper into it and to get to the bottom of it and to try to reconcile it with scripture and not to make it bend to my will, but rather I want to submit to God and to be edified by the study of scripture to understand what it means and how it applies to us today. Cause I don't think there's anything in scripture that doesn't apply to us. Although we have to understand how it applies to us. It can take different shapes and forms, but 
the topic that comes up a lot when you're talking to people about really both of these, both the topic of maybe biblical inerrancy or divine inspiration of scripture, and also related to Christian libertarianism and anarchism, is the topic of the conquest of Canaan and the wars of the Old Testament. And I've done actually quite a few episodes lately on the things going on in the world pertaining to Russia and Ukraine and just war in general and kind of making the Christian argument for being anti-war. And so an objection that comes up a lot when we talk about these ideas, whether it's, again, the anti-war position, just being a Christian anarchist, or taking a high view of scripture, people are going to, in all three of those categories, bring up the idea or the objection, rather, of, well, how do you handle the conquest of Canaan and the wars of the Old Testament? And so you and I were talking with our fellow co-hosts about this, and then we had the idea to do an episode on this because I think it's an important topic. I think we're going to do our best to approach this subject in a way that I hope anyone, regardless of their particular theological bent or wherever they're coming from in life, can appreciate our answers. But I do think it's important for people to understand that we are coming at this with the, I guess you could call it the presupposition or the belief in scripture being God-inspired, God-breathed. And so we're not going to try to explain any of these things away by just saying, oh, well, this was just things that men wrote down and they didn't come from God. That would not be our view. And beyond that, that there are people that maybe come up with different answers and that's fine. We're just trying to provide one possible answer that we think that we think fits best. So with those kind of caveats out of the way, I guess I want to pitch to you to start out here what the basic argument would be regarding the correct interpretation of the Old Testament wars and the conquest of Canaan and how we would begin to sort of unpack these subjects and how we would explain the, I guess, like the reconciliation we would make between that and our other positions. Yeah. Yeah. So what I think we can do is present a basic paradigm and analogy. So I want to present the analogy, as it were, for how one might think about what we're going to introduce. So the basic paradigm here is something I'm going to call suspension of usual play rules of the game, which are at work during the epic of the old Mosaic Covenant. And that is basically from the Exodus to the ministry of Christ. And the analogy I have in mind for this paradigm is not that God somehow changed the rules, but that what we might consider an unusual set of rules are at play during the old Mosaic covenant than at other times, than before or after. So I'm not a sports guy, but I'm going to attempt a sports analogy here because we're talking about rules of the game. In soccer, as I understand it, one moves the ball with one's feet and may not move the ball with one's hands. Now, what's interesting about this is it doesn't always apply. However, certain players, like the goalies, may use their hands, and under certain conditions, 
such as when the ball goes out of bounds, a player can pick up the ball. There are also other quote-unquote unusual conditions when special rules apply, such as during a penalty kick or sudden death overtime, and these are all terms I've heard and I don't really know. I guess I've seen a soccer game (laughs) on TV or something, so I vaguely know what they're referring to. But you can imagine what I'm talking about in terms of there's a usual play when the teams are kicking the ball back and forth and then say when the ball goes out of bounds or there's a penalty kick, there's these not usual play rules that come in come into right. the game. And yeah. it also it reminds me also of another analogy I think of is in hockey when they have their I think they're called the power plays where like hmm. there'll be a if someone gets a penalty or something and they're in the penalty box, they continue to play but then one team is with is without a player for like a period of time. Hmm. So the other team has more players on the rink than the other. And so you have this like, it's a change of the rules, so to speak, because usually you have balanced teams. But then for this small period, they're unbalanced. And so the teams have to come up with different strategies. And obviously, the team with the more players on the field has an advantage because of that. So that's another... <laughs> Most sports have things like that, like sudden death overtime. And almost every sport has a suspension of normal rules and stuff. Yeah. And what I'm trying to emphasize here with this analogy is that what's going on is not a change of the rules, but something that the game, as it were, the normal play, the way things normally are, has this kind of special circumstance built in to it at a meta level, so to speak, so that it can accommodate what's going on here. And that what's particularly in focus is how the game is operating, right? So my point was about the no using your hands (laughs) that say when it goes out of bounds, that's sort of built in. At that time, then you can, somebody, a player can pick up the ball with their hands. Or when there's like a penalty kick, it's not as though the players are doing their normal activities that's kind of suspended for momentarily, temporarily suspended, how that's how the play is occurring. Okay, so that's the basic idea. And there's a temporary hiatus of usual play. Now, this is when we get specific into how I'm sort of drawing this into what's going on in Scripture during this time, what we're calling the Old Covenant, right? The Old Mosaic Covenant from the time of the Exodus to the ministry of Christ. The theological term for this suspension of usual play or this non-usual rules at play is called, or where this paradigm I'm drawing from, this idea is called eschatological intrusion ethics. So what's the rules at play, the normal or usual rules at play are suspended and a special set of rules that's accommodated in the play is an intrusion of the eschaton. Now we're going to we're going to try to explain that what the normal rules of play are and what this intrusion of the eschaton this eschatological intrusion ethics mean, but in any case it was a temporary 
and unique arrangement during the old Mosaic covenant and during that time only. And that accounts for what may seem like some kind of incoherence with what was going on in the conquest of Canaan and the Israelite entering into the land after escaping, as it were, Egypt and coming into the promised land, Canaan, the land of Canaan and what they're doing there. So maybe, maybe I should just explain the term there, eschatological. Basically what that refers to is end times, as we say, but specifically it has in view things associated with the final judgment. So whenever we see something connected with the end of the world, as it were, God bringing final judgment on the earth, that has to do, that's eschatological, that has to do with the eschaton. And going back to the beginning, so these things are connected, right? So we have a beginning, middle, and end in the biblical narrative. After the fall into sin, and what the fall into sin really was, was a breaking of the original covenant, the original arrangement that God had established with humanity in the garden that we refer to as the covenant of works. We don't have to elaborate on that, but the point is when that was broken, a new situation, a new set of rules, so to speak, from here till eternity was set in place, or I should say here till the final judgment. And that is known as the common grace order. And this operates from the fall all the way up to Moses, all the way up to the Exodus, and then is paused and then resumes again after the ministry of Christ or when he accomplishes his atoning work. And during that common grace order, the non-aggression principle, as we all understand it, is functioning. So think of it this way. The fall occurs, common grace is established, and the non-aggression principle is in play. And then with Moses to Christ, that's paused, at least within a certain geography, within the territory of Canaan, or with the Israelites as they leave Egypt and enter right, that's an important game. distinction because even within this special episode that we're highlighting here, it's not like it was a suspension to the point where it was like in going to the entire world, Israel was given to just <laughs> do uh, whatever. There was specific limitations even within this special episode in terms of what they could do and where they could do it. No, that's right. Not only is this a chronologically temporary situation, but it's bounded in terms right. of a geography. Right. It doesn't justify, like, because I'm just thinking of all the ways in which people will commonly use Old Testament wars to justify current day American imperialism. And it's like, I don't know where in the Old Testament we see Israel sending anything equivalent to troops halfway across the world to drop weapons of mass destruction upon groups of uns unsuspecting innocent civilian populations. That's <laughs> so right. it doesn't, it, it's, that's right. There's a lack of congruency there. <laughs> that's right. At this time, it didn't involve any parts of, as it was called, the, I don't know, at various times, Asia Minor, or what we know as Turkey. Right. Didn't involve beyond 
the borders. It didn't have anything to do with China or India and so on. So let's see, perhaps this explaining further this common grace, the thing that needs to be emphasized is that how the non-aggression principle is connected to the common grace order, the usual rules of play. At the, after the, after the flood, rather, God sends a flood, all human life except for Noah and his family are destroyed. God then establishes this particular covenant, the sign of which was the rainbow. He's guaranteeing that the order of the cosmos will continue and that he will not bring such a judgment by water on the whole earth again. What he, what that's looking forward to, however, what that's anticipating is the final judgment, the final, final judgment by fire. In the meantime, things will operate according to this common grace order. Nature will continue. Human societies will continue. And in that sort of establishment of that common grace covenant with Noah, one of the things God does is he explicitly warrants, he explicitly establishes what we might call civil governance or how to deal with crime. And that's Genesis 9a. Don't have the verses at the top of my head, but that's similar to what you see elsewhere with eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. And the technical term for that is lex talionis, right? That just means the law of retribution, meaning principle of proportionality with regard with regard to the execution of justice in bringing about restitution for crimes and the epitome of that crime being murder. Right. And then so, obviously the, the implied moral principle that's guiding this, if you extrapolate out of it, would be essentially the non-aggression principle. That the initiation of violence upon someone who has not committed violence against you or anyone else is strictly prohibited. This is obviously echoed in Ten Commandments and elsewhere in the Bible as well. That's right. So the idea there is that if someone kills, murders somebody, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, it not only has to do with the extent or degree that coercion might be used, but it also has application to whether coercion is used at all. So this idea of proportionality means not just if, you know, you punch a guy in the face, that proportionate coercion means he doesn't deserve more than an equal punch in the face. It does mean that, but aside from that, it also means if there's some action by someone that does not involve coercion, it would be a violation of proportionality to use coercion to try to stop or prevent it. So that's how this idea of lex talionis is tied in with the non-aggression principle. It's essentially that, I, that same idea that means 
that idea of proportionality means not only you can't go beyond a proportionate use of coercion, but if there is no coercion to begin with, if there's no initiation of coercion, proportionality means that you cannot use coercion in response to it. So that's the common grace order essentially involves that rule, that usual play, right? That rule for usual play. Right. But that's, but what we're saying is that applied before the Exodus and it's in application now post the death and resurrection of Christ. But in the middle, but in, in between those two points within the land of Canaan or Israel, whatever we want to call it, that is suspended to some extent for this special event. That's right. And so, so now we want to get into explaining, I guess, what that entails and what the, you know, I guess the what and the why behind the suspension. That's right. And there's a particular Hebrew term that then is used in theological discourse to refer to it. I pronounce it Karim. I suppose that's maybe not the best Hebrew pronunciation. It's got a Hebrew ch and then a rolled <laughs> R, right? Or so cherem or something like that. And that's the noun. There's a verb version that's something like haram, haram, something like that. But anyway, so the noun that's used as sort of like an adjective, cherem. So it's cherem holy war. And what cherem means is something that's devoted to utter destruction, right? So it's under the ban or prohibited or it's giving something to being utterly destroyed. And that kind of Karam holy war applies within what were to be the Israelites' promised land territory. Just as a reference to biblical nerds, I read somewhere that Karim in Hebrew, the translation into Greek is anathema. And of course, in anathema, ah. the word anathema has to do with a curse. So right. I, I didn't study that much further, but I just sort of saw reference to that. And I thought that was interesting. People can look that up more. I don't, I don't know if in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, if anathema is used where Karim is in the Hebrew, but that's a possibility. I'll have to look into that further. In any case, in this situation, God is literally, and we say typologically, that is a, a particular kind of symbol, symbolically, judging the inhabitants of Canaan at that time. So this is what's going on. And the intrusionary or the symbolic element that's being symbolized or referred to or the thing that's intruding in terms of the ethic at work is the still yet to come, even now, final judgment. And that symbolism has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. So I can explain that real quick. The vertical idea of eschatological intrusion is that something about the heavenly realm, right? The kingdom of God kingdom of heaven as it exists outside the earthly realm where God has full dominion, there's no sin, is intruding into the earthly dimension. So that's sort of the vertical idea. 
the horizontal idea sort of has to do with the different terms, symbolism and typology. So typology is a symbol that symbolizes something in the future, right? So that's a type. Type is a symbol pointing to the future. That's why I use a different word. So that horizontal element, the chronological element of something, there's another term proleptically, so like ahead of time, already being experienced in the present. There is a test at the end of this episode, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, I, I think maybe some of these terms, yeah, might be useful in terms of people wanting to look into it further, having these technical terms at hand to research it further. So that's why we're introducing yeah. them, not to make it overly complicated. But in any case, there's a little literal aspect of it. complicated enough. <laughs> yes, it's complicated enough already. There's a literal <laughs> aspect in where the Canaanites, and there's a whole list of them, some list six different peoples, some seven, but the point is they're all the inhabitants of that area, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, I think the Girgashites, whoever they are, get thrown in there at some point. But they're all, basically, they're all the inhabitants of Canaan, of that region. And so there is a judgment, right? It's a judgment that's literal. They're obviously, they're being judged. And one that's typological. That is, it is symbolic of the future judgment and of God's holy heavenly realm coming to earth and that sort of has a cleansing (laughs) cleansing effect whenever the holy shows up all that's impure gets destroyed right and it's important brief pause here at this point in the conversation it's something although i haven't really talked about it on this podcast up until now it is worth mentioning that we do believe in god's providential authority or right so to speak to execute judgment or to perform judgment on sinners. And that God is what makes God so loving and merciful. What makes the cross so beautiful is that instead of just following through with that just judgment, that he that instead performs the greatest mercy and grace that could ever be performed unto us sinners who <laughs> were not deserving of it. And so it's important to A point out, I think, the that God is well within his rights to to want to perform this judgment and also the judgment that is to come that you're, that this is all like, like you're saying, this is alluding to that final judgment that, and there's different, some people will believe in hell in the conventions of eternal conscious torment. Some might believe in annihilationism. I would reject the idea of universal reconciliation. I do believe that some are destined to some sort of final judgment. I'm a little, I'm a little personally agnostic as to exactly the form that will take, but I do believe that God does judge those who have rejected him and his grace. And I also think as it pertains to this special episode in Canaan, it's worth mentioning here that this was basically foretold. I mean, it said when in, in Genesis 15, God's basically telling Abraham that you're going to have many descendants. They're going to leave this land, be enslaved, and then they're going to come back and get this land. And he says that the reason that he has to wait is because the sin of the Amorites, which are one of the groups living in Canaan, that the sin has not yet reached its full measure. 
so to speak. So God knows. So it's kind of like God, God doesn't execute the judgment on the people preemptively before their sin is complete, which I think is another important component to this. It's not like God just jumped the gun or anything. It didn't offer the way I pictured it that God's sort of like giving this group of people the chance, so to speak, to not fall into total depravity, but he knows that eventually that they, you know, that the grace he's giving them, they will use it up and they will just completely reject him and totally give into their wickedness. And so he has many different purposes, I think, in what he does with the Israelites in Canaan. But one of them is certainly delivering that judgment on those people. And there are many biblical scholars who have gone into the just all of the evidence we have into the just absolute total depravity and wickedness of the Canaanite people. It was things like child sacrifice and rituals that they did to worship their God were just totally, I mean, they make the Grammys performance that just happened probably look like a, uh, like, <laughs> a, a like a PG-13 movie or puppet show or something. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, well, we should come back to that point. Let me take a second to just describe the scenario of setting up the old covenant a little bit more for your listeners. Yeah. So as you alluded to, the Israelites are coming out of Egypt at this time. So where they were enslaved to, to back up a little bit further. So we have the covenant in the garden that's broken. God establishes a covenant of grace, which includes alongside of it, this common grace. So this non-saving grace order from that time that then is made more explicit after the flood. And then he makes more explicit his special grace, saving grace covenant, covenant of grace with Abraham. That's when we really have the establishment of a particular people, the children of Abraham, not all the children of Abraham, of course, but as reckoned through Isaac and then through Jacob, who is himself Israel, and then his descendants. In Deuteronomy 20, it says, in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, this is what was promised to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob, You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete or utter destruction. And then it lists those peoples, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Oh, I think I left out the Perizzites before anyway. As the Lord your God has commanded. And when Saul is king after the period of the judges and they get into the monarchy. That's a whole nother issue. But in any case, yeah, God gives this command, go and strike Amalek. This is some remaining part of the inhabitants and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's just Basically everything that, well, it says as that breathes, all right? So it's all the people, all the animals, adult, 
or newborn, everybody. So that's the karam or karam total devotion to destruction. And when the people are coming out of Egypt, as was, you mentioned, already foretold with the covenant with Abraham, that they would go there and then they would become enslaved as they were, that they would be delivered. So they're coming out of Egypt. Of course, Egypt itself, although it wasn't totally destroyed, does receive sort of a level of that under the plagues, some level of cursing and judgment from God. It also has a typological type of character. It's sort of leading up to this more full-fledged Karim destruction. At, they get to Sinai, they wander around the wilderness for some time before they enter under Joshua. But at Sinai is when God establishes the, this temporary period officially in terms of the covenant. So the Ten Commandments are given. Moses begins to write the Torah, the law, that is the Pentateuch as we understand it during this time. And it's that covenant as received by Moses from God himself to establish the people under this arrangement that is this special, unique, temporary situation where the normal rules of play are then suspended. Common grace is on hold for the most part within the borders of the land that they're going into, which is itself a picture of heaven being delivered from the bondage of sin into the new heavens and the new earth accomplished by Christ. And so then the symbol goes away and then we don't have this kind of symbol anymore. Yeah. So, so those are the terms of the warfare there. God has established a, an eschatological intrusionary community of people that are to live by these rules, which of course they cannot and do not. And so then are themselves judged, right? They're not utter, utterly destroyed, but they receive the curses of the covenant because they can't keep that. That is setting up sort of the context for Christ coming and himself in his own person and in his own work, fulfilling that righteousness, that full obedience and suffering the curse himself as the lamb of God to be the substitute for sinners to save them. The actual accomplishment of bringing the actual kingdom of God, right. which he will then consummate in his second coming. So that's, right. that's the context of what we understand to be the old covenant. That's what the old covenant is. That's what it's about. So sometimes referred to as the old Mosaic covenant, specifying it's this whole situation set up from Sinai. Yeah, to kind of pull out some of the things you've said there and elaborate and expand upon them a little more. The old covenant in this kingdom of Israel and, and sort of the charter, the commands that they're given, whether it's the moral commands that they were given, whether it's the call to live in a certain purity or to live in obedience to God, or even in these like specific commands about going and destroying every all of the Canaanites. And they, in, at every level, they fall short of doing the things that God has asked them to do. <laughs> they never actually, which is worth mentioning, some people will gloss over that, but it's worth mentioning that they don't 
actually go and destroy all the Canaanites at any point or take the entire land of Canaan that's promised to them at any point. And there's obviously consequences that they have to deal with that. And I think the whole episode, it does so many things. Like it points to Christ and our need for a savior. I think that's kind of like the first and foremost thing that I see when I look back at Israel and I look at, it shows our need for Christ. It shows the inability of the state and monarchs to save us and to lead us to God. And rather how those things are more often than not tools to draw us away from God and into idolatry. And also it just shows how even when God is in direct covenant with a specific kingdom to try to make that kingdom and its people more like him, they fall short. And that is an observation that reflects not only on, like I already said, our sinful nature and need for a savior, but also on the limited nature of the kingdoms of man and to the perfect nature and everlasting glory of the kingdom of God. And so the failed kingdom of Israel points us towards Christ's kingdom in so many ways. So I, I think there's, yeah. there, there's just so, there's so much there that if we dismiss this as just like, you know, oh, this is just stone age wars that people try to romanticize. We're not only doing damage to the gospel by taking away from this important part of the narrative, we're missing out on important lessons to, to pull from this narrative that I think speak to both our faith on a theological level and also inform our political beliefs as well. Yeah, I think that to try to understand this episode in redemptive history, in the biblical narrative, in terms of either dismissing it as something sinful itself that you know, no, God didn't release. This wasn't God's command or something. It was the Israelites' own fallible Neanderthalhood or something like that. That's wrong. And to then try to justify it, to sort of weasel through it in terms of some kind of common grace order explanation in terms of like the principles of just war that just doesn't do justice to what's really going on, the, the meaning of the passage. I think there is one more objection that might be raised in people's minds, and we have referred to this in a couple episodes in the Reformed Libertarians podcast. I think we might address it in episode four. If people are interested, they can go look at that. But real briefly, while we've introduced this as in terms of the analogy or the paradigm of unusual rules of play or suspension of the usual rules of play, they might think, well, how is this just not a blatant violation of the non-aggression principle? Is what you're explaining here or setting up just saying that God violates the non-aggression principle? And here's how this needs to be understood. Because all of reality because he, God created it all, all of reality is created by God. Everything and every person is his property. And so he cannot initiate aggression against what is his. And that's right. the key here. And so even less so against sinners. 
Right. I was about to say, like, in con- debt yeah. to him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Even I mean, considering so he would be, considering he would be just in administering justice against all of mankind and just wiping us out at any point in this entire arc, the fact yeah. that he in- instead chose to work through the kingdom of Israel and the Jewish people to bring about a savior and to give us this redemptive arc. And the Old Testament wars and conquest of of Canaan is an important chapter in this redemptive story and arc that God performs. And we don't get the significance of the cross without that, I don't think. Yeah, it's it's completely supernatural. I mean, it can only have that kind of context of explanatory context. If you try to explain it apart from that, apart from God's reality, apart from the reality of divine revelation, there, there, it's not going to, it can't be warranted. It can't, you can't make any correct sense out of it. Right. And, like they're coming into a, if you tried to use regular common, like you said, common grace ethics or uh-huh. the non-aggression principle or just war to justify, because even like, listen, I mean, the best way to even try to make that argument is to point to the evils of the Canaanites. But even then it's like, okay, like, yes, the culture was evil and wicked. That doesn't quite explain why God told them to destroy everything. <laughs> like, that, <laughs> right. might, that might be an explanation for like going and taking out the people doing the wicked evil, but it doesn't quite explain why the full scale of what God did was at play. Now I think there's other explanations that I think go in tandem with this sort of covenantal redemptive arc Uh explanation that we're getting at here and the suspension of rules. I think something that, that goes along with it is that God is, I think I've kind of alluded to this already, but God is also in the same. So in the same ways that the Jewish people ask God about, or ask Jesus rather about different things like, well, is it, just to divorce and jesus says no i hate divorce i only allowed it because of the wickedness of your heart and in the same ways that like god allowed slavery even though we all would condemn slavery the ownership of another person as being immoral but then people will say well then why is slavery allowed like well god allowed it's clear through a reading of scripture that god allowed certain evils to happen now, and at the same time, he's restraining those evils, right? Like, he's not just letting them go off and to do those things with no limitations. Like, there's limitations on the institution of slavery and indentured servitude. There's limitations on divorce and what people can do there. And I think in tandem with all the explanations that we've given, this isn't to be an explanation that overrides those, but I think just rather works along with them is that God is also understanding that these are people who are sinners and who have violent impulses. <laughs> and I think God is able to sovereignly work in those people to take things that they would maybe intend to use for evil in other contexts and to use them for good. And I think also to teach us lessons about it's like, okay, you want to there are those among you who want to engage in war and think that engaging in war and conquest is the path to obtaining what you want. Well, then we see how that doesn't work out. And so this is something yeah. that we learn from, I think. So it's, again, I think there's so many different 
layers of explanation and just like any passage in scripture, any part within this tapestry of the Bible, this is what we find. We find that there are just multiple layers where it and it blows my mind just how God can and God can be at work at like 50 different levels at once, accomplishing 50 different things all through a couple chapters in the Bible. You'll see all these things at work and being connected and worked out through God's providential decree. Yeah, I think the wickedness of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan that indicates why God is, in fact, judging them, right? Right. Both literally at this time and symbolically, because they were horrible people murdering each other and so on. But even as you said, that really can't be understood apart from understanding it as God's prerogative being within his rights to condemn, to judge all of humanity. And that that judgment was postponed. The threatened eschatological judgment, sending everybody to hell, basically, that was given in the garden, if you eat of this fruit, when he comes in judgment to Adam and Eve and the serpent, that judgment does not actually take place. What he does instead is he institutes this era of common grace, establishing the covenant of saving grace in the seed of the woman that would eventually crush the seed of the serpent's head. But alongside of that, life would continue, that man would still be able to eat by the sweat of his brow, that childbirth would continue, though with pain. And knowing that it's God's prerogative, that he's within his rights to bring about that final judgment. And so also these he's within his rights to have suspension of the normal rules of play that he established there to point to his right to final judgment. This eschatological intrusion only makes sense within what we might call an Augustinian biblical view of original sin and total depravity of man. And whether one has an a view of hell as eternal conscious torment or annihilationism, as you said, it's perhaps indifferent to that question, but not indifferent to the question of God's right to judge humanity. Right. Yep. And to which condemn if you don't believe humanity, in, which he right. doesn't. And if you don't believe in those things, then it's like, well, not sure why we needed Jesus to die on the cross then. If it wasn't no, exactly. to save us from, <laughs> so no, it's exactly. like these, it's these it's things pointing are, to the eschatological right. intrusion, the par excellence of Christ Himself, that vertical dimension of Christ Himself coming in the flesh, of right. God Himself being incarnate, and of Jesus being the one that God has now that He has accomplished redemption, being the one He has a, appointed to judge the world. So. This is pointing forward to not only the need of Christ as a savior, but to the person and work of Christ as the one who is ultimately this eschatological intrusion, who then suffers the final judgment on the cross proleptically, right? right? Ahead of time. That's the final judgment taking place. It's your and my final judgment by faith that we are united with Christ and that we die and are raised with him. Thank God. Right. Amen. Well, the 
so with this is the perspective, this eschatological intrusion ethics that takes place during the temporary and geographically limited Old Covenant theocracy. This also has, as you've already mentioned in parts, a libertarian anarchist upshot, so to speak. So for the Christian libertarian anarchist, we can understand then history from, say, within the West, that those who supported establishmentarianism or the state church from Theodosius, you know, some say Constantine, but I know that's a little somewhat historically inaccurate. Mostly it's from Theodosius and what's the other guy's name in Armenia? Tiridates or something like that, the Armenian uh, emperor, that they're establishing a state church was not consistent with the Christian view of the end of the Old Covenant. And further, and here's the radical point, even further, that those presuming to legitimize a monopoly state, that this is, we can recognize that this is usurping God's exclusive prerogative to legitimize that use of coercion, right? Right. So God did legitimize it within the bounds of the territory of Canaan during the Old Covenant theocracy. He established that as a temporary suspension of usual play picture of the coming final judgment. And those who then try to legitimize the monopoly of the state today are in fact usurping God's exclusive prerogative to do that. Right. This is like, I think what's echoed in like Romans 12 through Romans 13, where Paul is saying like, no, God says vengeance belongs to me. Precisely. It's not your job to punish sinners. Now, then in Romans 13, he says, now we need civil governance. We do need the administration of civil justice while we're here on earth for those who initiate violence or violate people's rights. But that is about restraining the acts of evil men in the de- in the defense of the innocent and not about punishing sinners and yep. exacting God, exacting what is God's prerogative to exact or what's also God's prerogative to extend mercy to those who he has extended mercy to. That's right. So in that passage, Paul is making explicit the resumption of the common grace rules of play under Lex Talionis and the non-aggression principle. That's how we're to understand it. Yep. And I think that, yeah, that's why I think we have the uh, correct interpretation of Romans 13 because it, oh, it, it really yeah, just it ties, ties together. Yeah. It, all, it just ties everything together. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think to summarize here, I mean, I think we can, we look back and we see that this was a special event in history that even within the special event, it had limitations. And nowhere do we have First America's chapter eight or something where God <laughs> issues to the founding fathers a decree that lasts from now until some arbitrary date in the future where the kingdom of America and its military is to conquer and control the world and dictate what happens via its very hawkish foreign policy and military activity. What we gain from this interpretation, which I think is correct, is not only an explanation for the Old Testament 
wars and, and why they happened. But that limitation, the explanatory power of saying this was a suspension of these normal rules means that those wars cannot be used to justify any wars of aggression currently I mean, that have happened since or are currently going on today. That's right. We have not been commanded by God to go to war against anyone. And rather, I think God has closed the chapter on that, as we have just said here, to say, no, we tried it this way. We did it for these reasons. It pointed to Christ. Christ has come. Now we're, we're supposed to leave statecraft and warcraft behind us and to submit ourselves to God's sovereignty. <laughs> yeah. And to yeah. live at peace with all as far as it depends on us. Yeah, that's right. The very temporary and unique nature of the old covenant and it's being become obsolete with the estat with Christ's establishment of the new covenant is a condemnation of every current state, every existing state and their warfare among all their other policies that are simple right. violations of the non-aggression principle and the common grace order. Awesome. I think that's as good a place as any to finish it. I think we hit the nail on the head there, Greg. I really appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with me. We threw a lot there at the listeners, but I think hopefully they were able to follow along with us. The only, the, I think the only thing people are going to struggle with, like you said, is some people might have a hesitation with the idea of accepting God's prerogative to the deliverer of judgment yeah, and, and yeah. the ability to not, you know, I mean, to me, I think the analogy that came into my head is like, it's sort of like a referee in sports. It's not a perfect analogy, but you know, the referee is not like the referee can like, I think of football because that's the sport I know the most about. And in football, before you hike the ball, n no one can move around or they can move around a little bit, but only in specific ways. And the referees aren't bound by those rules. You know what I mean, the, the referee can run all up and down. They can be on the offensive side, the defensive side. They can go off the field and back on. Those who are the curators of the game are not bound to the same rules as the players of the game are. So, yeah, um, at, this, at the same so, time, I, I do think it's important to say that while God is the originator of the rules, as he is with the reality bound by those rules, he does not violate the rules that he has committed himself to. So God is not arbitrary. Sure. He has, in revealing himself to be a holy God, he has shown what standard of perfection and righteousness that he himself abides by eternally. And that is dependable. But... Yes. As the creator, what he's bound himself to is not the same as what we're bound to. It is not a standard by which is not to say there's something higher than God by which we may judge God according to. Sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yep. So it doesn't in him in God saying he's binding himself to a certain standard. It doesn't involve. It never involves God promising to not judge all of humanity. That's not right. part of the standard he binds himself to, and no one can hold God to that standard and judge God. Right. Yeah. Yep. No, I think that's true. Yep. So, well, Greg, I appreciate you again coming on, and I'm really happy with how this turned out. I think that the listeners will 
get a lot from this and hopefully be edified and encouraged. I'm edified and encouraged. I think this is a slam dunk case that gives us so much. It points us to the cross. It yeah. makes what was done on the cross even that more magnificent it does. and glorious and displaying in God and all of his attributes, his judgment and his wrath towards sinners. Yeah. But also, because, but in juxt, juxtaposed with that, his love and his mercy for sinners who didn't deserve it. That's right. Which makes the love and the grace that much more potent. And how this means that every state in existence today is in complete violation of that which God has decreed. So That's we right. gained so much from this, and I'm really happy with how the conversation went. So before we head out, can you just give any last closing thoughts you have and then plug your podcast again with Carrie? the Reformed Libertarians podcast. Tell people where they can find you guys and your work and any other things that you want to plug here at the conclusion here. Well, for a closing thought, I guess for if people are interested in thinking about the eschatological intrusion ethics during the Old Covenant theocracy as an explanation for the conquest of Canaan, I'll send you a link to a friend's podcast that's no longer continuing, but it's still online. People can find it called the Glory Cloud Podcast. And the hosts at that time discuss this issue. I don't know if that would be much more illuminating for listeners, but that's a possibility. So I'll, you know, that's something to direct them to for the resources. And as for our own podcast. I guess I, le- I feel like maybe I left out the fact that I'm co-host with Carrie Baldwin and she is the proprietor of mereliberty.com and she has her own podcast called Dare to Think. So that's also worth checking out. She discusses abortion and women's rights and various things like that along a Christian Reformed Libertarian perspective. Reformed Libertarians podcast can be found at Twitter at Refo Liberty. We're also on, we have a page on Facebook. Our main website is reformedlibertarians.com in all our episodes and forthcoming articles. I think I only have one at this point. We have a resource page that basically links to other websites and podcasts, but we hope to have books listed there eventually. And we would love to hear from you. We have a con- we have a contact form on our front page. So if you become a listener, that would be excellent. But thank you, Jacob, for the opportunity to talk about this important topic. Yeah, of course. So yeah, everyone definitely check out Greg and Carrie's show, Reformed Libertarians, and also check out Carrie's other work as well. It's all highly recommended stuff so well that's it for today's episode again i hope you enjoyed it and that it was valuable and informational informative rather to you and we will be back again next week with more content so looking forward to talking with you then the biblical anarchy podcast is a part of the christians for liberty network a project of the libertarian christian institute If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. 
If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.